Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Dr. Kino's Film Emporium. This week we have a very special guest. His name is Tai Singh. And to those of you who know the BBFC, which is the other BBFC, which stands for Bristol Bad Film Club, he's a bit of a local legend in the Bristol film community. I think I can just see him through the Emporium's dusty window. He's coming down the road. Oh, he's got a, he's got a slightly dusty, sandy package under his arm. Yeah, mm, okay, this could be interesting. Oh, here he comes now. Ty, it's great to see you. Welcome to the Emporium. Oh, great for having me. Thank this is a lovely place, place you got here. Thank you very much. It's surprisingly large on the inside as well. It doesn't look much from the outside, but, you know, there we go. So, please, take a seat. Uh, yeah, I've uh, got the two uh, leather, uh, sort of Chesterfield-style uh, wing-back chairs ready. Now, you... Oh, yeah, you're getting sand on the floor from your package under your arm. Sorry. Okay, sorry. yeah, no, if you could put that down there, that'd be great. So, um, before we get into a bit more depth, what, what film have you chosen for us uh, for this week's Emporium? So, as someone who runs uh, a bad film club, quote-unquote, um, I picked a film that was a flop on release, uh, had middling reviews, and is based on airport trash of the highest order. So I've chosen 2005 Sahara, starring Matthew McConaughey, Stephen Zahn, and Penelope Cruz. They're fine actors, all three, but I, I've not seen this. Um, I think I, I see it advertised on Film 4 every now and then, and it's like, meh, no, yeah. I don't think so. So this is going to be interesting. So yeah, okay, that explains the sand on the floor, so I'll clear that up later, thank you. Right, uh, before we get into that, though... Um, what was this is a question I, I tend to ask all um, visitors to the Emporium, but this um, and what was the very first film that you re- actually recall seeing at the cinema? So uh, the local cinema near where I live was the Orpheus Bristol, um, which is still there in Henleys, and they used to do repertoire screenings of Disney classics. So I think it was either an archival screening of The Lady and the Tramp, or it was <laughs> The Land Before Time. Okay. by Don yep. Bluth. Yes. That was a film I definitely remember seeing in the cinema and uh, emotionally scarring me to my core. <laughs> so much so that you uh, you ended up working in a film industry to a sort of uh, to quite a large degree. Interesting. Okay, so um, with Don uh, Don Bluth, obviously did I think the Secrets of Nim as well, didn't he? And um, an American uh, tale, an American tale, Five yeah. Goes West, etc. Yeah. So interesting. It's actually the the last few. Uh, visitors to the Emporium. Two of them actually saw uh, the Disney's Jungle Book, and okay. that was um, sometime in the early eighties, I believe, and or early to mid eighties when it was released. So that actually ties in a lot. So you know, no pun intended. Uh, that does tie in a lot to uh, to the sort of pattern of uh, of distribution. Okay, so the Orpheus in Bristol, which I nicknamed the Awfulness because it's my local flick as well. Uh, sorry, <laughs> flick. It's my local flea pit as well. Um, above uh, a well-known supermarket uh, that we can't really name, or that we probably could, although they're not actually giving me any money, so we won't <laughs> name them. Um, but let's just say it's a very middle-class um, uh, establishment, should we say. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's basically a concrete box, but I've seen some great films there as well, so interesting. So with Bristol, you're local. Um, did you go to university in Bristol, or did you go further afield? No, I went to university in Liverpool, uh, where okay. I studied yeah. social and economic history. Okay, so quite a long way from film then. Yeah, um, obviously I was a big f- film fan growing up, but 
I I wasn't sure there was any sort of future job for me in that. I always saw myself kind of getting into journalism or mm-hmm. writing as a profession. So I did history. It was history was a subject I I loved, something I was good at. But even at university, I was writing film reviews for the the local student newspaper, mm-hmm. and my dissertation was actually uh, why Hollywood rewrites history for entertainment. So okay. even while I was studying history, there was a, a film slant going on. Mm. Um, but out of university, I was kind of uh, editorial assistants on various history magazines. And then 2008, the, the financial crash happened. And I ended up at various creative agencies kind of doing editorial and, you know, social media marketing. Mm-hmm. And I kind of became an online editor for various websites. And then I was at a creative agency that gave me a job where I was writing insurance articles for two years. Oh, uh, that sounds... They were kind of broker-facing insurance articles, and I was uh, so bored. I was going to say, that sounds horrific. <laughs> it was horrific, but from that boredom, there was the creative spark of the Bristol Bad Film Club, which was okay. kind of... I, I always looked at kind of the Prince Charles Cinema in London with a bit of envy, because they mm. would do these kind of, you know, screenings of B uh, B movies or, you know, things like The Room, and I was always like, there's nowhere here in Bristol that kind of shows those kind of films, those kind of pulpy exploitation, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, VHS classics, for want of a better word. And I I talked to the watershed about it and they were like, no. And (laughs) I I went to the cube and pitched them and they weren't interested. They had their own kind of uh, exploitation night, the Hellfire Video Club, which is great. And I'm a fan of. It's huge. Um, run, by, run by Matt Dunn. I think he's on hiatus at the moment. Yes. But that's, and, and some Joe amazing... Blakely. Yes, yeah, yeah. They've yeah. done some great films there. And they yeah. do great stuff, but they, they weren't showing stuff like, uh, you know, Samurai Cop or Plan mm. 9 from Outer Space. Mm. So we started out doing these screenings above a pub that sold out. The first screening, 50 people showed up. Mm-hmm. The next one was Samurai Cop and 100 people showed up. And we just kept kind of kept it going. Um, for seven years, we've done some outdoor screenings. And we, we've basically done a screening a month for like the past seven years now at this point. That's a long um, time, yeah. Yeah, just kind of showing either films that are so bad they're hilarious. We don't mm-hmm. show films that are just bad and, mm. you know, painful to watch. Sure. Or films that are like really unique um, mm. that, that might not be bad, but, you know, you're not going to see these films anywhere else because mm. they have a sort of cult genre mystique about them. I mean, it's it's a fine line between a, a film that's so bad it's good and a film that's just so bad it's just rubbish and you know it, you really don't your soul dies and you know a little when you when you do see it. But something because yeah. I've seen a couple of, of BBFC stuff and I enjoy them thoroughly. But the at the same time, you know, there's there's how do you how do you, how do you actually decide uh, what is a you know is there any is there an art to it or do you, do you have I a second you... pair of eyes and ears to sort of make sure you're not going off off track? Yeah, I used to get um, some friends round and we would watch them as a group. And that would kind of be my gauge, you know, would these films work in a group? But after a while, these friends were like, you know, no more. You're you're showing us too much <laughs> dreck. And, you know, you might find the odd nugget of gold, but they kind of bowed out quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of like my own guess really because there are some cult bad films like the hands of manos that have developed like a cult following for Mm. it being so bad it's good Mm. but there are very long sections of that film that are just boring it's just people driving Mm. and you know watching the mystery science theater 3000 version of that is much better than actually watching the full version of that film in my opinion so it is kind Mm -hmm. of like my 
my best guess. So it's it's all okay. my fault if you have a terrible time. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, bear that in mind. Bear that in mind, BBFC fans. You know, it's it's Ty's fault. Now I've got to thank you as well because uh, it was thanks to BBFC that I actually managed to see the room, and that was mm, about a yeah. couple of years ago with Greg Sestero as well, which is even a, you know even fantastic. A great experience um so i mean you've, you've shown the room how many times now we've shown it once a year and then we have the odd couple of special screenings when i can get greg in town we've had tommy wiseo himself here in bristol twice mm-hmm. um i think that's enough <laughs> he's, a, he's a handful um, Indeed. <laughs> and we've done you know their their film best friends we've shown that several times and uh yeah yeah we're, we're we're good friends with Greg. He's a, always a delight. I think he's going to come back to Bristol when all this um, COVID is, blows, is, over. Yeah. blows over. Because you had him around for Christmas, didn't you? Is that right, weren't you? Yeah, yeah so, so he, he was, was in town, town promoting the disaster, disaster artist, and we were doing a couple of screenings in Bristol for that. And it was around December, and I'd been touring the UK with him as his Q&A guy. Um, and then he was going to fly to Iceland on Boxing Day, but he had nowhere to go on Christmas Day. And I wasn't going to let him just stay in his hotel room. So I invited him around to my parents for Christmas Day. And my dad, you know, promptly got him drunk. We played board games, watched Back to the Future. It was great fun. Yeah. A good time was had by all. My mum loved it. Good. No, he's a very likeable chap. He comes across really well in... Uh... At the, at the screenings that I've seen with him within there. So he's got a very healthy appreciation of just how ridiculous the whole thing has been. He's very self-aware. Yes, which is always always, always handy. Not yeah. something you can say about some of the... Um, is it Neil? What's Neil Green. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but that's another. That's perhaps uh, for another time. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ty, uh, who, has anyone actually mentored you in, in film at all? Anyone, or did it, was it basically... A, did you forge your own path through film? Did you get anyone at all to? Well, I currently work for the BFI, uh, the, the Film Audience Network, where I work with venues all around the country. And my colleagues, Mark Cosgrove, who is the curator of Watershed, and mm. Maddie Prost, who is uh, someone I work with, they have definitely been uh, inspirations for me over the past couple of years. Um, Maddie actually told me about the job and I think they had kind of seen what I'd been doing with the Bristol Bad Film Club from afar but it was very much you know I was just doing my own thing and it wasn't really something the watershed was interested in but they could see that I was quite good at marketing film events that always sold out so she reached out and was like you know you're very good at promoting bad films do you want to come to the BFI and you know work with us to promote you know indie films that need to be seen by bigger audiences and mm-hmm. so I've been there for the past couple of years fantastic um, what a great job but growing up it not really my parents were were interested in film my mum obviously introduced me to musicals she's a big Rogers and Hammerstein fan but it was always from reading stuff that I discovered you know more genres like I became a big Jackie Chan fan when I was 12 and you know got into martial arts cinema and then you know, you discovered new action films through that, but it was always about reading about film that I discovered new interests rather than one person kind of steering me. Mm-hmm. So the with BBFC, there's uh, you've, you've shown some really interesting documentaries as well in terms of was it Looking for Weng Weng, which I absolutely loved, and they had uh, the the um, documentary filmmaker over. So tell me a bit more about that because that that really stood out for me. Yeah. So for those of your um, 
you know, listening audience that might not be familiar, Weng Weng was a three foot three Filipino action star. And he made a series of action films that basically involved him getting up to antics, punching people in the groin and running off. And probably the most famous is uh, For Your Height Only, which was a James Bond spoof where he is double O three and a half. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's lots of seducing women, punching bad guys in the groin um, and, you know, lots of stunts in, involving Weng Weng. And he became, you know, a, a big star in the Philippines. And Australian filmmaker Andrew Leovold made this documentary, Searching for Wang Wang. And he was doing a, a tour and I brought him to Bristol. And, um, you know, he, he basically, we did a night dedicated to Wang Wang. And he's a fascinating character, someone who from his height was kind of like simultaneously revered and shunned. Mm, yeah. And, you know, he kind of carved out his own niche for himself. But yeah, he's a fascinating figure. It, it was it was again the the films are you know hilariously bad but the, the the story behind the film is always what I find more interesting and that's mm. kind of what I I always introduce the films that we do at the Bristol Bad Film Club because half the time the story behind how these films got made is a hundred times more entertaining than the film itself and that's kind of why I have brought Sahara along with us. I was going to say I had a quick I was going to have the. The, the brief Wikipedia entry was like, oh, okay, this is hmm, <laughs> interesting stuff. Right, we'll see what uh, Ty brings to this. And yeah, so we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, as well, And you are an author as well, aren't you? You've got, which I've got this book, and it's wonderful. It's uh, Born to be Bad, and it's about film villains, especially 1980s, 1990s film villains. Yeah, so obviously I'm, I'm kind of a big action genre film fan. And um, several years ago, the Cube was doing like an anniversary screening of Robocop, and I was Top there film. in the yep. yeah, Robohoven. yep, exactly. And while I was there watching it for like the fiftieth time, and everyone was quoting the lines along, it suddenly struck me that all the actors who played bad guys in it, um, Kurtwood Smith, Ronnie Cox, mm -hmm. uh, Paul McCrane, Ray Wise, they weren't actors that you would cast as a bad guy because Paul McCrane had been in Fame. Ronnie Cox has kind of been in Deliverance and um, Kurtwood Smith up to that point was just kind of a theatre actor. He played like stern fathers in films like Dead Poets Society. Actually, that might have come after. Um, but they're not like the typical bad actors. And it kind of got me thinking, how did these actors end up in this film? And then while I was cycling drunk back home, I thought, hey, why don't I just track down all the actors that played iconic villains from my childhood and talk to them about what what's that that's like being perceived as a bad guy you know mm -hmm. is it great do you constantly get cast in films mm. did it end up getting you stereotyped as an actor and mm -hmm. everyone had a different story i was interviewing uh, british thespians i was interviewing bodybuilders martial artists ballet dancers it was a whole wide range of people people that had been in bond films the indiana jones films mad max had faced off against Arnie, had fought Bruce Lee, and everyone had a different story. And mm -hmm. yeah, so that that was my book. And I've just finished a follow-up imaginatively called Born to be Bad Volume 2, which hopefully <laughs> will be out later in the year. Fantastic. Is that self-publishing or did you get a publisher for this? Um... No, there's a, uh, I got an American publisher who liked the idea and, mm -hmm. and took a punt on me and they published Fantastic. the first book. Um, the publisher's called Bear Manor Media. Mm -hmm. And they're based out in uh, Georgia. Okay, and when would that be released, to the best of your knowledge? 
uh, hopefully uh, just before Christmas. But the, the nice. current book is available out now in all your local bookshops. Marvellous. Thank you very much. And I've read it, folks, uh, and it's great. It's There's some great stories in there. Um, it's safe to say, I think, Ty, that Steven Seagal does not come out of it particularly well from some of the stories that no. have been told about him. Everyone so. I spoke to who's worked with Steven Seagal basically had nothing complimentary to say about the man. There you go. Yeah. Uh, there we are. So, now, can we say anything complimentary about Sahara? So this is this is an interesting choice because when I first saw, it, I thought, "Ooh, you've got to do a, you've got to really, you've got to really got to sell this to me." Because yeah. I was like not convinced at all. Bo, so please tell me why should the Emporium have this in its front window? So I grew up watching pulpy adventure films. So I grew up on the likes of James Bond, Indiana Jones, King Solomon's Mines, Tarzan, Star Wars. So I I loved and and I still do love films with exotic locales. You know, high octane action and you know heroic daring do, but you know, growing up on these films, I was very much aware there's a certain level of overbearing machismo, <laughs> um, you know, white savior storylines, you oh, know, yes. very blunt on the nose dialogue, and you know, often awkward sexual politics. Um, <laughs> but when I was a teenager, that wasn't so much of a, a yep. big concern for me, yep. and I worked Why in a WH Smith. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, who cares? Um, I worked in a WH Smiths and I always saw on the shelves Clive Cussler's books, mm. you know, with his action hero, Dirk Pitt. Which is, uh, is it Brad, Brad's dad? No, surely not. Do you think? No, no, it's not. <laughs> so, yeah, they always had like, you know, treasure on the front and speedboats and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the back cover descriptions, they always promised action, adventure. And, you know, it was a very simple holiday-esque read. Mm-hmm. And the character of Dirk Pitt, he's kind of like one part James Bond, one part Jack Ryan, one part Indiana Jones, um, and kind of one part Clive Cussler, the author mm. himself, who, you know, you get the impression this is what he would like to be. A little bit of projection, I think, going on here. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and I think Clive Cussler, he died, I think, this year or last year. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. and he had written... I think over 30 books starring Dirk Pitt. Mm-hmm. And when the character was getting a bit old in the tooth, mm-hmm. he simply unveiled, oh, Dirk Pitt had had a long lost son, Dirk Pitt Jr. Here we go. The adventures keep continuing. Indeed. Just like and, that man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, they're, they're all nonsense. It's airport mm. trash. You Basically, like one story is, you know, Dirk Pitt and his best friend, Al Gordino, discover a bunch of neo-Nazis are going to destroy the Ross ice shelf you know, flood the world and a bunch of neo-Nazis are going to survive in a bunch of super arcs and repopulate and rebuild civilization in that Aryan yeah. Ary- image. Aryan that sort of nonsense. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. It's all trash. And previously they had made uh, a film of one of Clive Custer's books, Raise the Titanic. Oh, um, yes, that's, yeah, okay. Which was a flop. It cost 40 million and grossed just 7 million. Ooh, and, you know, was that, there was, was that some Lou Grade who was involved with that? It was, yeah. Uh, didn't, and... didn't he famously quip it would have cost about the same or cheaper to actually raise the original boat in the first place or something? I think he said it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic. Ah, uh, right, there you go. <laughs> but um, Custler was, you know, pissed off at mm. the film's performance and he vowed that Hollywood would never adapt any of his books again unless he had full creative sign-off mm. um and then the 2000s happened and you know 
Jack Ryan had been rebooted with um, Ben Affleck in The Sum of All Fears. Mm-hmm. Jason Bourne had been relaunched. And, you know, studios were looking at another literary action hero they could throw on the big screen because sure. this was before Indiana Jones came back in mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. So they were looking for, you know, that kind of hero. You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe hadn't happened yet. James Bond had actually semi-crashed and burned mm. um, after Die Another Day. So Bond wasn't around. Mm. This was... Um, a couple of years before Daniel Craig would take the role. Mm. Um, thank thank so, goodness he did as well, because it was the following year that uh, 2006 was was when Bond, I think, and this is slightly diverting, but the I think Jason Bourne films really pretty much um, reset the action thriller mould in many ways. Yeah, you? and, and so. everything about Sahara is very old-fashioned mm. when you watch it. And there's a kind of a reason for that, because the rights... For Clive Cussler's book were kind of snapped up by Philip Anschultz, who mm-hmm. is a billionaire oilman and he's a bit of a religious conservative. Uh-huh. So he purchased the rights to Sahara and set up a production company called Crusader Entertainment. And Ooh. they produce wholesome family films like The Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Mm. So he managed to convince Clive Cussler to sell the rights to his book. And Anne Schultz agreed to pay Cussler like $10 million for every book that he wanted to adapt. And that Cussler was given final say over script and the hiring of actors, which is insane. Mm. If anyone knows anything about filmmaking, you don't let the authors have that kind of control because they can just veto anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, film adaptations are their own thing. They're, they're, yeah. you know. You're not filming the book. You're making the exactly. book into a film. And that's a crucial difference. Yeah. So what followed was a spectacular cinematic car crash of a production. (laughs) I'm going to let everyone make their own mind up about the film itself that Hollywood had never seen before and probably hasn't seen since. It was like a clash of egos, inexperienced superstars, armies of writers. And eventually this film would lose 105 million at the box office. Exactly. So it was, it's, it's very weird. So, you know, scripts go through reruns, but to kind of give people an idea of what the film is about, our heroes, Steve Zahn, um, mm-hmm. playing Al Gordino, and Dirk Pitt, played by Matthew McConaughey, they're best friends, they do everything together, solving adventures. They team up with Dr. Eva Rojas, played by Penelope Cruz, who works for the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. because they're investigating a potential plague in Africa. Mm. And what they discover is a French industrialist solar-powered energy plant, which has been designed to destroy toxic waste, is actually leaking toxins into the water table. Okay. So they are on a race to stop it before the plague spreads across the world and, you know, kills everyone. And they team up with local tribes. They face off with evil warlords in high-speed boat chases. And also discover an American Civil War ironclad battleship in the middle of the desert. As you do. As, As you do. Yeah, of course. Now... Why wouldn't you? I mean, you know. That's a ludicrous plot already. <laughs> okay. And I've read the book, and the book <laughs> is even more ludicrous. Okay. Because there are so many weird subplots, and one of them is that they find Abraham Lincoln's body on the ironclad, and that he was kidnapped during the Civil War, and there was a you know, big cover-up, and uh-huh. it was a double that was shot at the theatre. Oh, and there's also okay. like awkward racial uh, stereotypes where there's this like female slave owner who captures them and beats them. And 
There's also a subplot about a 1930s female aviator who crashed in the desert and they find her plane later on and sort make Amelia her... Earhart type stuff. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, so they're obviously... In, they're chucking the kitchen sink and everything else into this. Yeah. So obviously okay. when the screenwriters were adapting it, they're like, well, half of this can go. Mm-hmm. We don't need this. Mm. And um, Custler didn't like that. Mm. So... He is a man with uh, an ego, and you know this, for anyone who's ever read any of his books, he often writes himself in as a character, some sort of wise shaman that meets Dirk Pitt in the middle of an adventure and kind of gives him a little helping hand or some kind of clue. Mm. So the film went through so many rewrites, and you know there were uh, Thomas Dean Donnelly and Joshua Oppenheimer who had done Sound of Thunder, um, there were loads of other writers like David Ward who actually uh, got an Oscar for The Sting. Okay. And basically he was like thrown off. And he said at the time to the LA Times, as a screenwriter, you usually have the final say on the script. Mm-hmm. But this situation was completely reversed. You're basically the hired gun and you shot the bullets that Clive Cussler gave you. Mm-hmm. Um, and Clive Cussler was basically just vetoing everything you know there was one screenwriter called James V Hart who had worked on uh, Spielberg's Hook and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula he was paid like almost over half a million to come in and rework the script and he said it was a nightmare Mm -hmm. to work with and basically Cussler was vetoing all of this at the same time and and like insulting everyone and he also was vetoing all the directors because there were a bunch of directors that Paramount wanted to have, but, um, you know, they were all bowing out because the script wasn't ready. And they were like, well, until we can see the script, we're not going to do it. Which is, you know, not unreasonable because why would you, uh, you know, agree to something when you hadn't seen the script? Yeah. And then Mm. (laughs) things got very fruity when apparently a couple of the screenwriters met with Clive Cussler and Clive Cussler allegedly got quite anti-Semitic. Oh. And then when they suggested a prominent black actor to play Al Gordino, who in the books is like a short, squat Italian, right. he was quite vocal about that not happening. And so uh-huh. they were kind of like, look, he's just being a nightmare. What are we going to do? And apparently Paramount was just going off and just trying to find any director that would do it. And they picked Breck Eisner. Mm. who is the son of Disney chairman Michael Eisner Mm. and at this point had just directed a couple of episodes of Steven Spielberg's sci-fi miniseries Taken, but he had never helmed a feature film before. And what was the budget on this? Because this is a seriously big budget. It was like $150 That's a lot of moolah. To, yes, for a first-time director to get his oh wow okay but so, apparently so Custler just approved of Eisner they were like yep yeah, okay this kid seems to get it mm-hmm. um there were I think the script was on like its ninth rerun by mm. this and uh Eisner kind of tinkered about it and all of this was scaring off potential A-list actors mm-hmm. that were involved apparently Tom Cruise wanted to play Dirk Pitt but Custler vetoed Tom Cruise because he was too short. Um, He didn't want Hugh Jackman because Hugh Jackman didn't have black hair and green eyes like his literary creation had. Mm. Um, But apparently Matthew McConaughey really wanted to do it. He Mm. really wanted it. He loved the books and thought, you know, he could bring something to this. And apparently he pestered Clive Custler about it. And Clive Custler eventually relented on the kind of basis that he wears contact lenses so that he has green eyes 
just like his character. And you kind of like, if you've got Matt and Conaghy, the guy's good looking enough, you know, you can mm. let something like eye colour go. Yeah. But what the hell? Mm-hmm. So eventually everything kind of fell into place. The rest of the cast came on and they started shooting. Uh, and then there were all sorts of things kind of going on because Clive Cussler had not approved the script and they had already started filming. <sighs> so... <laughs> It's just he, really, yeah, it, it's, I mean, it, it's talking like Heaven's Gate type. Sort of yeah. Car crash out, yeah. So okay. Paramount were like, we've got deadlines to meet. We can't just wait for this guy. So they started filming and Clive Custler started doing a book tour, slagging off the film adaptation of his book while it was filming. Mm. Which is incredible. It's shooting yourself in the foot mm. on, you know, a massive massive scale so paramount you know sued him they were like you can't just do this that that's outrageous and then he was counter suing them so while all of this is going on there's the production where apparently they're filming in morocco and they're spending a lot of money on like local bribes and mm-hmm. courtesy payments to get okay. stuff done <laughs> Then apparently there were reports that $105,000 was spent on bottled water. And I, I've actually spoken to Rain Wilson from the American office who plays mm. um, a character in this. He's like the sidekick to Steve Zahn in Matthew McConaughey. He's like the cue to their bond. And he uh, was like... Rudy Gunn, which is a great Rudy name. Gunn. He's yes. their tech genius. Ah, of course. There's always a tech genius somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, spending was out of control, man. It was like insane. There were helicopters everywhere. It was, be- you know, money was being used to grease the wheels of the production. Apparently there was, you know, a sequence that they filmed with this 1930s female heavy to going down, but then that was cut. And that had cost two million to film. Ouch! So mm. it was insane, insane. And I think the final budget was something like 160 million. Oof. And it's not, uh, not pocket change, no. It's so not pocket change. How was um, how was Philip Anschutz about this? I mean, because he must have seen this sort of you know hemorrhaging money. Amazing. Well, he was kind of like along the things of you know by the time we have a final film, you know it'll it'll be worth it. This is like Indiana Jones. It's like. Uh, you know James Bond and at the time Matthew McConaughey and Penelope Cruz not only were they like two of the biggest sexiest stars on the planet they were also in a relationship mm-hmm. so apparently they hooked up during the production oh I didn't know that this is before no. Bardem for uh, Penelope Cruz okay exactly yeah, yeah. so um, while all of this was still going on you know the lawsuits were happening and when the film eventually opened in April 2005 it did open to kind of mixed reviews because, you know, the, the, the author had been slagging it off and th- there was a lot of other stuff kind of coming out and it only grossed $69 million at the US box office mm. with another $15 million overseas. Ooh. So that was $120 million in total. Ooh. So that was a disaster for, you know, Crusader Entertainment sure. because they had spent, you know, $61 million in distribution and marketing. Mm. So, yeah, the, the Dirk Pitt franchise crashed and burned mm. and... It, yeah, it, it basically, Clive Cussler and the adventuring lawsuits, they went on for like another eight years. Oh, no, really? Oh, 2013, I think, is when the lawsuit finally reached its end. And Crusader Entertainment had folded and be called Bristol Bay. Another, okay. Yeah. And Cussler, <laughs> um, basically, it, it kind of 
came to a point where the jury awarded Crusader five million for Cussler breaching an implied covenant of good faith, mm -hmm. but then Cussler also claimed victory because he could claim some money uh, for kind of lost earnings or, or breach of contract. Mm. And that he could also make 8.5 million if they ever made another film. But the fact that Sahara flopped meant that was sure. never going to happen. Sure. So both sides kind of claimed victory. Right. But essentially, that everyone had just spent a lot of money for just a complete debacle. Sure. Um, As, and the. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, I've been talking about that's it. Okay. No, no, it's, this is great. No. Um, As a film type, mm. does it actually stand up? Because this is the sort of this is one of the crucial things for the Emporium. Is it actually better, like Waterworld? Uh, is it actually not as bad as you've been told? It's or is not it as, as bad, as, bad you've as you've been told. So okay. obviously, I come from a very different place to most people. I love films that reach for the stars and fall short. I have got in my you know Blu-ray collection, Waterworld, John Carter, Jupiter <laughs> Ascending. You know all these kind of big budget flops where they're like we're gonna do something spectacular and no one is interested mm -hmm. and i feel the same about sahara it is at its core ridiculous you have you know a very pretty action hero going to africa to save morocco and you know all african countries from a virus that has been caused by another rich white guy and the only kind of black characters are like an evil warlord who has teamed up with the French bad guy mm. to consolidate his power. So there is that whole white saviour thing going on. But essentially, if you've watched any James Bond, Indiana Jones film, mm. you can... You We're know, pretty familiar with that. Trope. We're familiar with that, yeah. 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 Uh, but Matthew McConaughey is charming. There is a great speedboat action sequence mm -hmm. on the Niger River, which is fantastic fun. Um, Clint Mansell, who does a lot of the scores for Darren Aronofsky's film, Indeed, does yes. the music in this, and it is great. If they ever are looking for someone to, you know, get in on the Bond films, Clint Mansell might would be a very strong choice. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really good fun. It's the the main core of the film is kind of the banter between the two friends, Dirk Pitt mm -hmm. and Al Gordino, and Steve Zahn's always fun. Mm, uh, Penelope yeah, Cruz yeah. is kind of wasted, but there's like a strong supporting cast of people like William H Macy, who's their I boss. Know. Yeah, I saw it. I there's, saw it in the credits, and there's Lambert yeah. Wilson as well, the Merovingian. Very there's Merovingian, Delroy so. Lindo as yes, their CIA contact. There's, there's some serious players here. So yeah. yeah, so there's you know a decent cast there, and mm. it's a good fun action film. That when I spoke to Rain Wilson about this, he was like. You know, people come up to me and ask me about The Office all the time. Mm. But he said, it is amazing how many people come up to me and talk to me about Sahara. It's like <laughs> it's more people than Galaxy Quest okay. and all that is because it's on planes all the time. Yeah. And it's on TV on all the time. He said when he's on planes, he'll often walk down the aisles just to see how many people are watching Sahara. And he said, a lot of them are. It's mm. like no one... When I talked to him, he was like, you are the first person to ever want to interview me about Sahara. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's like, but members of the public come up to me all the time and just say how much, you know, they really enjoy it and love mm. it. But, you know, um, critically, it was kind of mauled and forgotten. Sure. sure. But I think it is one of those small action films that, you know, if you love Indiana Jones, if you love King Solomon's Minds, if you Check love that out. kind of, you know, stupid, brain dead adventure films, you know, 
You got Sahara it. is great fun. It's going to tick your boxes. It'll cool. tick all your boxes. If that is not your bag, then by all means, please avoid this mm, because you'll get nothing from it. <laughs> but enough. if you're like, hey, a film that where the character is one part Jack Ryan, one part Indiana Jones, one part James Bond, intrigues you, then I would give Sahara a, a look. And I don't think it would be two hours wasted. No, no, because this is the argument, isn't it? Like, you know, when you see a bad film, you think, oh, that's two hours, two hours of my life I'm never going to get back. But if you enjoy it, then that's two hours of your life that you've, exactly. you've enjoyed. Exactly. And Lenny James um, yes, he's is the, the bad warlord, guy. He? Yeah. He's the yeah. evil warlord. He's wonderful in it. It's, again, it's all actor. these good yeah. actors mm. having fun. And the people I've spoken to who worked on the film, despite the gratuitous amount of money going on uh, mm-hmm. being spent, everyone else seemed to have fun. Okay. Um, um, going on to yeah. this, somebody who I saw in the credits uh, was actually Cussler's daughter. Is it? Is that game she played the aviator that was cut. Ah, so the cutting so, floor um, fate waited. Yes. Okay. So she okay. played the 1930s Amelia Earhart aviator. There was going to be a prologue sequence where they see her crashing in the desert because our heroes find the wreckage of the plane later on in the film. Right. But, you know, that was cut and they just find the wreckage of a plane in the desert. Um, Shame. But, yeah. It, yeah. So... With Mike, uh, with Breck Eisner directing, and you know Clive Cussler's daughter in a cameo, that you know there was nepotism galore. Of course, but you know what would you really? And what's wrong with that? Hollywood? You know, like Hollywood exactly. does. Um, you know, it's a pretty insular industry, isn't it? In many ways, I think. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Mm. I have to say, Ty, it's on a bit of a knife edge for me. So I, I, I'm not surprised. Um, <sighs> I knew I should have gone with Jupiter Ascending. Yeah. The it's tilting. I think because you work, you the passion comes across. So against my better judgment, I will I will allow it in the Emporium's front window. So you well have done. chosen wisely. Thank you. And when I say wisely, <laughs> you could have picked worse. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you so much for that. That's really that's great. It's uh, yeah. So folks, the uh, Breck Eisner directed two thousand and five. Uh, effort Sahara starring Matthew McConaughey Steve Zahn Gail Kessler and Penelope Cruz and Delroy Lindo and Rain Wilson and who else was it? William H. Macy William H. Macy yes so a really interesting mix and sounds like it could be yeah a good sort of Sunday afternoon film when you're a little bit sleepy from all the roast dinners if that's your thing absolutely you know it's a two two beers and a pizza movie ah Perfect description. Okay. Yeah. It's going in the front window, but only just. Cool. Okay, Ty, do you have anything um, that is, is coming up for BBFC? Because the, there's, uh, I believe there is a, another monthly screening via Facebook. Yes. So in September, we do um, a monthly watch party of a, you know, cult bad film. Um, and on the 23rd of September, we're showing the 1971 monster movie Zat where a scientist combines his DNA with that of a catfish. Okay. It's as, you, as yep. ridiculous. Yeah. Yep. Wonderful. As you'd yep. expect. Um, and for the past several months, we've also been doing online film quizzes. Um, mm. So me and Rob Hill, the author of the Bad Movie Bible, we host a online film quiz where you can uh, take part. We do a form. You just fill it all out. It's multiple choice. So please, you don't have to feel like you have any working knowledge of bad films it's all audio visual 
we have posters, we have, you know, what happens next. We have kind of rip off and remakes from around the world. We have celebrity commercials that they did in Japan. We have music rounds, which is just often movie tie-in songs or or actors, you know, who released singles and albums. It's all just ridiculous fun and no kind of previous knowledge is of any help whatsoever. Fantastic. So we kind of make it as accessible for everyone. And where do people access that? So you can find all the information on our Facebook group. Uh, just look for Bristol Bad Film Club and all the information's there. Uh, we've got a website, um, bristolbadfilmclub.co.uk. Uh, we're also on Instagram or we're on Twitter at the other BBFC. Marvellous. Tai Singh, thank you so much for bringing Sahara in. And yes, that is going in the front window. Much appreciated. Yeah. My pleasure. Take care. Bye.